how are you today? <laughs> Here's what I'm going to tell you. This has absolutely nothing to do with my sermon. This is not an illustration for it. Uh, this is a promotion for Vacation Bible School. Um, excited about it. I will be wearing this, um, and I'm kind of starting to discover um, periodically, not entirely through the Vacation Bible School session, because already I'm sweating in it. It doesn't <laughs> breathe at all. Uh, but my character's name is Mickey Way. Uh, we're obviously super excited about doing this with the kids. Thank you to all of you who have volunteered to be part of it. Also want to encourage you, if you have some time and just want to swing by and see what God is doing with the little kids, we would love to have you be part of that. And then also want to let everybody know and remind you that the the last day is a family day. Uh, we've intentionally incorporated it to where you with your kiddos will go through vacation Bible school with them. It's not just come and kind of see from afar. We want the parents to experience that. So um, also, if you have kids or know of kids that would like to be part of it, you know, there's still time to sign up. Uh, we're going to be uh, setting up today and tomorrow for vacation Bible school, and then we're going to be kicking it off on Tuesday. So, very excited about it. If it's okay, I'm going to just ask for a minute to take this off, um, because I'll probably pass out. And also, I don't know that you're going to take me seriously when I'm preaching, um, so it might be a distraction. So let me just, and I, I promise I do have clothes on under here, okay, just, just so you know, okay? Um, but while we're doing that, I do want to say again, thank you uh, for letting us go. We had a great time on our vacation, uh, just spending time with family and friends. Uh, we're back. We're restored. We got in late last night and had some time to, uh, how, yeah, how fast can a pastor get out of his spacesuit? So what is it? In, in NASA, doesn't it take like several hours for them to like truly get ready to go? Okay. You want me to take several hours to truly get, no. Okay. I'm kidding. Do you remember when. Think about that for a minute. How often have we gone through our lives and we've done something wrong that we know that we are forgiven for, but in our brains, the enemy will come back and say, do you remember when you did that? Do you remember when that happened? Do you remember when that occurred? Are you sure that you're forgiven? One of the things, too, that I find interesting sometimes, even in our marital life, is often we may have an argument. Now, I love my wife. She's wonderful. We're doing just great. But how many of us remember those times when we might have an argument, we might say, oh, sure, I forgive you, right? And then three weeks later, we've forgiven. But whatever it was that the argument caused to occur, we bring back up again. We don't forget it, do we? We keep it in our brains. And one of the things that we're going to discover this morning is that through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, not only does God forgive us, not only does he cast our sins as far as east as from the west, but they're forgotten. He doesn't remember them anymore. But what we have to recognize and remember and reflect upon is what Christ did so that could occur. We've been traveling through the book of Hebrews for these past several weeks, and what we've been learning is that Christ is the best of the best. You've heard me say before, he is the goat. He is the greatest of all times. And we need to be reminded of that when we go back and we look at our faith in Jesus. Because oftentimes, when difficulty assails us, when challenges come before us, when the unexpected occurs, our faith can be shattered. It can be broken. 
it can be challenged. We can begin to question ourselves and wonder truly where God is. And the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to encourage believers in Jesus to continue to persevere in their faith. We're going to be looking at chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews, and interestingly enough, next week, we're going to be sort of moving to the summary of this entire argument that the author has been building over the last 10 chapters. And really what he's going to do is essentially say, because of all of what we have learned, because of all of what we have seen, we are to persevere in our faith. Now, I want to ask you a quick question. How many of you remember and recognize that the Christian walk is not a sprint, but it's a marathon? So often in our lives, we come to Jesus, we're excited about what's going on, and then once we've come to Christ, we think that our lives are going to be perfect. And then, in reality, after having come to Christ, a lot of times our lives are even harder than they were before because the enemy is right there trying to attack, confuse, and discourage us to keep pressing on with Christ. And the true nature of this, and the reason the book of Hebrews was written, is individuals had come to faith in Christ. Jesus had been born, he had lived, he had died, he had risen from the grave, he had come back, demonstrated the power of his resurrection, and then he ascended into heaven, saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And everybody was excited, and everybody thought that this is going to occur soon, and fast, and quick. And then a few years later, those who had put their faith and trust in Christ were being persecuted for it. And simultaneously, they were looking over and they were looking at the temple and how things were done in the past. And that was continuing to occur. And they were being persecuted because of their belief in Christ. And they're looking over and they're saying, that's still going on. I've changed my faith to Jesus, and it's harder, and it's worse, and it's challenging, but yet that occurs over there. Why don't we just go back? Why don't we just go back to the way that it was? The sacrificial system that we know about and that we've seen for thousands of years. And so the author goes, and he begins to write, and he says, look, don't go back to what was let me show you how much greater Christ is than the prophets, than the priestly order, than Moses. May I remind you that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And we've learned that Melchizedek's uniqueness was this, that not only was he a priest, but he was also a king. And the reason that is so important is that in the priestly order under the Levitical tri tribe, those individuals could be priests, but they couldn't be kings. And we've also learned that kings couldn't be priests. And Uzziah tried that once, and it didn't go so well for him. So the uniqueness of Jesus under the order of Melchizedek is the fact that he is both priest and king. And so he is able to serve as priest, but he has the authority of king in order to enact what he has done through the power of the new covenant. Now remember too, as we've learned, that the sacrificial system that was set up by God, ordained by God, wasn't bad. It wasn't a bad thing, but it was incomplete. And we're reminded that again and again and again and again, people had to go to have their sins forgiven. 
and that one time a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and offer a blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Now think about that for a minute. Remember and recognize that only once a year did this occur. But also what have we learned through the book of Hebrews? We've learned that while it looked good on the outside, all it could do, all it had done, was make people, and I'm going to put it in quotes, ceremonial clean on the outside, yet the guilt within still remained. You're still guilty. You're still a sinner. You're still not forgiven. And people would go forward, the priest would enter in, atone for his own sins first, and then he would atone for the sins of the people. May we also remember this, that we, not being essentially of the Jewish order, would not have been anywhere inside either the tabernacle or the temple. We would have been standing outside wondering what was going on. And so may I remind you this morning, what would it be like if you came knowing that you were a sinner, having a guilty conscience, wanting to be forgiven by God, and having me look at you and say, because you are not of the order of the people of God, you need to remain outside. We're going to do our own thing. Good luck. God bless you. I hope it works. Better yet, what if you were fortunate enough to maybe get inside? Maybe you did have the ability to come and be part of what was going on inside the church. But what would happen if I told you that after all the pomp and circumstance, after all the show, after the blood sacrifice, when we were done, you're still guilty. And I, God, still remember. That's what we're talking about today. That's what we're going to learn about today in this passage. I want to throw out a question to you. And we're going to look at this in chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles with you, feel free to turn there. We're going to be looking essentially at the first 18 verses. It's also going to be up on the screen in a minute. But the question that we're asking simply is this. I can see how someone can forgive my sins, but they certainly won't forget them. Right? Oftentimes we learn and we hear about forgiveness. But in our brains, we are programmed to remember them. In fact, relationally, we're programmed to remember them. Sometimes we use them as sort of a passive-aggressive way of winning an argument. Oh, sure, I forgive you. Oh, sure, you've been forgiven. And then, like I said before, three weeks later when the same things occurred. Do you remember when you did that three weeks ago? I do, but I forgave you. What about the guilt that's there? What about the guilt that still remains? You've heard me say this before, and one of the things that I want to impose upon us before we dive into the scripture is this. To fully appreciate the severity and the seriousness of the gift of mercy and grace given us to us through Christ, we must acknowledge the severity and seriousness of our sin. That's the whole point of what's going on in this book. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to remember and recognize that apart from Christ, we are sinners in need of a Savior and that there is no means, there are no means to get to God on our own. That in our own ability, in our own intellectual capacity, in our own doing good things, well, those are good, they're never good enough. 
Because God is a holy God. He is separate from us. And God demands holiness. And yet what we discover through Jesus and the gift of his sacrifice is that in our imperfection, in our unholiness, we become made perfect through Jesus and we are holy in God's sight. It's a one and done. Christ goes to the cross. He is the perfect sacrifice. He dies upon it for us so that we are forgiven. And don't miss this. Our sins are forgotten by God. Let's take a moment. We're going to dive into the scriptures. Again, we're in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, We're looking particularly at the first 18 verses. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Just, Just stop there for a minute. What if year after year repeating endlessly you came to worship and year after year endlessly you left with a reminder of you're not perfect. You're still a sinner. I still remember. Verse 2, if it could would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. You're still guilty. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. It is Finished. Day after day, priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time the one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice he has made perfect, don't miss this, made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them 
After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. And when, they're, uh, uh, and when these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. What a beautiful passage out of the book of Hebrews. The author is again moving to sort of the conclusion of this stage of demonstrating the superiority of Jesus Christ. For those of you that are type A people, if you continue to read, the last part of this chapter is essentially, now that we've seen all of these things, may we continue to persevere. And then we move into the next couple of chapters where it's the, uh, essentially called the Hall of Faith and then the applicational aspects. Because of all of this, because of now what we've seen, how should we move forward and how should we live? But please don't miss what the author is talking about. And please don't uh, sort of... Uh, get frustrated with the repetition that the author gives. You'll recognize that for several passages we've been talking about the inferiority of the old system and the superiority of Jesus Christ. And then the author goes and compares Jesus to all of the other means, all of the other aspects of the Old Testament order or the Old Testament covenant. Brothers and sisters in Christ, please recognize that the Old Testament isn't bad. It was ordained by God. The laws that God put forward were there because of his love and his mercy and his grace. But what we come to discover through Jesus is that the reason that the law existed was not to make us perfect. It was there to remind us how truly sinful we are. And to point us the need of a savior a messiah someone who would come and once and for all remove the sins of the world one of the things that I want to show you first and foremost in verses 1 through 4 is this remember remember that the law is only a shadow of the good things to come and cannot make us perfect I love how the author utilizes this terminology of shadow because he's essentially playing with many forms that we see in the gospel of dark versus light. We need to remember and recognize that often those metaphors are used to describe Jesus Christ. Christ is the light of the world. Christ is the one who brings about the joy and the vision that we see. Christ is the one who removes darkness of sin and death and despair and destruction. But also, think about this for a minute. Why would he use the word shadow? Oftentimes we think that there's the Old Testament and then there's the New Testament. And now that we have the New Testament, we should just get rid of the old. That it's not anything that we need to look at. But what we have to be reminded about is this. That the Old Testament is a reminder of the entity of which will come. Think through this for a minute. I want to read this to you and then I want to kind of give a little demonstration. Remember that in order for a shadow to occur, there has to be an entity to create that shadow. Think about that. However, after realizing the object that creates the shadow is Jesus. 
Why would you ever want to return to a system that is a shadow of the good things to come? If you have what's real, if you have what's there, if you have Jesus Christ, why would you want to go back to a shadow? Now, it's hard to do. I don't know that the light is very good. But if I had a light on me, right, in front of me, you would see my shadow. That's not a bad thing. And if you were to look at the shadow, you would see me move and you would say, okay, that's Trevor's shadow. Not a bad thing. It's a reminder of something else that is there. But here's the key. The shadow doesn't exist without the entity being there. And so one of the things that we have to remember is that Christ has eternally existed Christ has always been king. Christ has always been God. And the Old Testament, as its sacrificial system is pointing toward Jesus, the author says it is just a shadow of what is to come. And Christ is the one who forms that shadow. The author continues on, and he says this, for this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices uh, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Don't miss that. If you have your Bibles, I would mark that down and recognize that the Old Testament isn't bad, but all the Old Testament was doing was pointing to our Savior Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Because how often in our lives do we not rest in the mercy, grace, forgiveness, and love of Jesus Christ? How often do we go back and add in Old Testament attributes into our sanctification and holiness and perfection before God? Oh, well, you know, I'll be, I'll be more loved by God if I do this, if I don't do that. That person is more loved by God if they do this or they don't do that. You're still not perfect, says the enemy. You're still not forgiven, says the enemy. And it's not forgotten, says the enemy. I still remember, says the enemy. And so when we look to rest in the mercy and grace of our Savior Jesus Christ, in what he has done for us by making us holy and making us perfect before God, all the enemy wants to do is try to say, I still remember, and you're still not perfect. Verse 2, if it could, why would they have not stopped being offered? For worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and for no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sin. One of the things that I want to encourage you is to remember and to cherish the old covenant system and the Old Testament. And this is the reason why. Don't ever forget that the continual, ongoing sacrifice of the Old Covenant represents the continual, ongoing grip of sin over our lives apart from Jesus Christ. Please don't ever forget that. 
So many times people come forward and they think, oh, you know, Jesus died to make me better. Jesus died to make a good person better. No. Jesus died to make a dead person in their sin who is caught in the grip of its control come alive once and for all through his final sacrifice. And when we recognize the severity of our sin and need of a Savior is when we truly embrace the love, mercy, grace, and joy of Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that the continual ongoing sacrifice of the old covenant represents the continual ongoing grip of sin over our lives apart from Jesus Christ. Friends, don't turn to yourself. Turn to Jesus to be made holy. Don't turn to your own ability to become better before God. Turn to Jesus to be better because of him before God. That's all what the author is setting up here. We try so often to go back and add things to our salvation, add things to our sanctification, to make us think that we are better because in our brains the enemy is saying, I still remember. Don't fall for that. Don't allow the enemy to have his control over you. The next thing that I want to show you in verses 5 through 7 is this. After remembering that the law is only a shadow of the good things to come and cannot make us perfect. So start to say, you know what? I'm not going to look back to things that I should do or not do. I'm going to turn to Jesus. Remember this. Remember that Christ joyfully and willingly comes to accomplish the will of the Father. Don't miss this in these verses. Essentially what's going on here is the author is quoting um, from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. It's a Davidic song. David writes this of the coming of the Messiah. But now, interestingly enough, on this side of Christ, it's being said of the Messiah. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Think about this for a minute. Now seeing the wholeness of Christ, the completeness of Christ, the once and for all sacrifice, the author and the people of God are able to look back and recognize what David meant when he said that. Think through this for a minute. David is alive in the Old Testament system when sacrifice and offering are all that the people of God see. They see it in front of them. They go back to the laws in Leviticus and they say, God has said this. What do you mean, David, when you're telling me that God says, sacrifice an offering you did not desire? It doesn't make sense because it's right before us. And all David is doing is saying, ah, but there is a day that is coming when the Messiah will be here and offer his sacrifice once and for all and it will be complete and you will fully see and understand. So Christ comes, as we know, he lives, he dies, he rises from the grave, he ascends into heaven, and now the people of God can fully say, I get it. I get it. I understand it now. God never, in the totality of the gospel, desired sacrifice and offerings. But he demanded and desired a body. But 
a body you prepared for me. If you have your Bibles with you, circle that. And this is an entire sermon. It's an entire class on this word. Christ has eternally existed. We see that through the Trinity. We know that he has eternally existed, yet we know that he took on flesh and became a man. But a body you, O Father, prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Remember, what we see back is what's been described even in the verses before us. Constantly, the priests were going and giving offerings. Constantly, year after year, the high priest would go in and sacrifice bulls and goats to forgive the people and cleanse them on the outside. But God still wasn't pleased. Then I said, who's the I in this? Jesus. Then I said, here I am. It is written me, about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Christ eternally exists. God has set up a sacrificial system that can cleanse outwardly, but what we discover is just a reminder of people's sins, a reminder that they need something more, a reminder that all that they do in all the pomp and circumstance isn't cleansing them from their sin. And so... Christ comes and God gives him a body and we read about that in Philippians 2. Christ, being fully God and fully man, is born of a virgin Mary and he lives and he teaches and he speaks of the good things to come but we know and we've discovered that Christ didn't come to live a happy life. Christ came on a mission and that mission is the cross. And so Christ moves forward to complete his mission and atones or pays for our sins. And as he says, it is finished. There is a twofold meaning in that. Number one, it is finished. I have finished paying for your sins. But it is also finished. The futility of the Old Testament sacrificial order. I have done, it is over, I have died once and for all. Your sins are forgiven. And P.S., by the way, they are now forgotten. But what was God's will? Jesus, we see in this, I have come to do your will, O God. Well, what is God's will? We see it clearly in Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the Lord's will, don't miss this, it was the Lord's will to crush him, speaking of Jesus, and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, think about that, the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. 
He will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. The will of the Lord is to give his one and only son to die upon a cross for those who he has created to receive forgiveness once and for all. And yet how many of us would have stood there watching Christ yelling, crucify, crucify, crucify. It boggles my mind that Jesus would joyfully and willingly do so on my behalf, on our behalf. And yet he, he does. And so when we look about th- at this, one of the things that I want to ask you and one of the things that I want to encourage you is this. We call ourselves Christians, correct? In the very meaning and root of that word, Christiano is a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, an emulator of Jesus. So it is one thing to say I'm a Christian. It is a whole nother to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. And so lovingly, I ask you this. Are you joyfully and willingly following God's will for your life, even if it leads you to the cross? Because so many of us want Jesus, but want our own life. We want the benefits, but we still want to be king. We want his holiness, but we still want our lives. And yet, truly, when we follow Jesus, it is not my will, but thy will be done, O God. And what I love about Jesus is he joyfully and willingly goes to the cross on our behalf. The night before he dies, he says, Father, If there's any other way, then may it be so. But if there isn't, then thy will be done. Friends, when we wonder about the forgiveness and forgottenness of our sins, first and foremost, remember that the law is only a shadow of the good things to come that cannot make us perfect. But then also remember that Christ joyfully and willingly comes to accomplish the will of the Father. And when we look to Christ and we emulate Christ, I leave you in this part with this. God desires faithful hearts and lives more than mere ritualistic performance. That is what God is after. God is after your heart and your life to accomplish his will in you. And time and time and time again through the Old Testament, merely what was occurring was ritualistic sacrifice that only could outwardly cleanse people, but inwardly not remove them of the guilt of their sin. Then we continue on, and we look in verses 8 through 10, and the next thing that I want to show you is this. Remember that because of Christ's obedience, we have been sanctified once and for all. Because Christ joyfully and willingly was obedient to the will of the Father, which was to crush him and destroy him, to bring greater things to come on the cross, we receive the benefit and we've been sanctified and are being sanctified 
once and for all, set apart, made holy before God. Verse 80 says, First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire. You were not pleased with them. Remember the author is now looking back and recognizing because of what Christ has done, he can see the completeness of what Christ has given and the futility of the Old Testament sacrifice. But also notice this, these little parentheses. Although the law required them to be made. Don't ever miss that. Don't ever remove the Old Testament away from the new. The two go hand in hand. The two together are the gospel. The two together complete the gospel story. The two make Christ who he is. And then the author goes back and reflecting on the words of Jesus, then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first, meaning the Old Testament system, to establish the second. Okay, real quick. Notice the word establish, not eradicate. Okay? Or to redo or remodel and remove. The first is important to complete the second. And by that will, okay, so notice this in verse 10, and by that will, what will? The will of Jesus joyfully and willingly going to the cross. We have been made holy. Passive, complete, How? Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all. Notice back in the psalm, you gave me a body. How have we been made holy? Through the sacrifice of that body, our Savior, Jesus. And we are holy once and for all. Because of Christ's obedience, we have been sanctified. Now, one of the things that I want to encourage you in is this. This does not mean that we are perfect and that we never sin. We are being made holy. It's this idea, this concept of already but not yet. In God's eyes through Jesus Christ, we are holy. We are set apart. We are perfect. Yet we are still in the world. And there still is sin and we still struggle with it. Has anybody sinned today? Really? You just sin there because I know you're lying. <laughs> it's this concept of already but not yet. We must look to what Christ has accomplished, but we must also look forward to the coming kingdom and recognize that in the kingdom, things will be culminated. There will be no more sin. There will be no more death. There will be no more pain. In today's world, we are perfect before God's eyes. We are sanctified because of him, yet we still live in a world that is entrapped with sin. And we still struggle with it. And so one of the things that I want to encourage you in is, is to recognize that in God's eyes through Jesus Christ, you are perfect. You are set apart. Yet we still are in a world that is broken. And I think sort of in summary, even though this could be another sermon in its entirety, the ESV summarizes this quite well. God's will, God's will, think about this. 
the will of God to give Jesus a body, to have him come to earth and be fully God and fully man, to accomplish his mission, which is to die on a cross on our behalf, to rise from the grave, to triumph over sin and death, to say it is finished, to then go back up to heaven and sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the will of God. What that does is it provides sanctification, the state of being made holy, through a different one-time offering, namely the body of Jesus Christ. One and done through our Savior Jesus. And then we continue on, and we see in verses 11 through 14, not only, as we've learned, that we should remember, because of Christ's obedience, we've been made uh, sanctified once and for all, that remember, because of Christ's perfect sacrifice, that makes us perfect before God. Because of Christ's perfect sacrifice, we are made perfect before God. Verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to made, be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect, okay? Circle this if you, if you want to in your Bibles. Made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Interestingly enough, we see the word perfect or a derivative of it throughout this series of Hebrews describing the perfection of Jesus or the imperfection of the Old Testament system. That word, the root of it, is repeated time and time and time again throughout Hebrews. But right here, this word, for the first time, is written to describe you and I through Jesus Christ. We hear Christ is perfect. Christ is the best of the best. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the one who completes the imperfection of the Old Testament. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is the perfect one. And yet right here, what we learn is because of Christ's perfection, you you have been made perfect before the eyes of God. Passive, complete, done, finished. So a couple things that I want to remind you of. First and foremost, remember that the words perfect, perfected, perfection, are used repeatedly throughout the book of Hebrews to speak of Christ. And right here, right here, when the enemy comes in to say to you, you're still a sinner, you're still not forgiven, I still remember, you can turn to him and you can say, this is the first time that the word perfected is applied to us. Now, the other thing that I want to show you, again, is this. Don't think that you're perfect, okay? I don't want you to become essentially, oh, I'm perfect and I never sin, okay? There is a, there's a kind of a 
attribute or sort of a, a means by which that some individuals think that we can achieve sinless perfection this side of glory. Okay? And that's not what's being discussed here. Okay? Perfected for all time does not mean that believers are now already sinless, but that Christ has fully earned their perfection, which will certainly be applied to Christian in God's good time, in the culmination of the coming of Christ. But I also want you to just take a minute, and I just want to give you this analogy. I love right before it, it says that there's a time coming when he will make an enemies a footstool. What enemies do you have today in your life? What sins are there? What things are bringing you before God and making you think that you're not good enough? Uh, this footstool is one that we have in our kitchen. Um, what I love is actually Noah uses this quite readily, and I'm amazed where he can get with it. But I want you to think about this. What in your life right now is causing you to feel like you're not good enough to come before Jesus? Maybe you're sitting here and you love Christ, but you're sitting there and going, I'm just not, I'm not perfect, I'm not good enough. Or maybe you're looking at the world and you're saying, you know what, it's getting worse before it's getting better. Notice here, speaking prophetically, that a time is coming when Christ will make an enemy's all of the enemies, okay? Everything in the world that's an enemy of God. And forgive me, this is the only spot I've got. A footstool. Everything in the world. All of the enemies that are out there contrary to Jesus there is a time coming when they are going to be a mere footstool for Jesus' feet. Why would you ever want to go back to a system that cannot forgive you of your sins and continually remind you of your guilt when you have Jesus Christ and your sins are forgiven and they are forgotten. And P.S., by the way, a day is coming when all of the enemies of God are going to be made a footstool at Jesus' feet. Also makes me a little bit taller, too. Right? Look at this footstool. That's what's going to happen. And then finally, what I want you to do is this. In verses 15 through 18, remember that Christ's sacrifice permits the Father to not only forgive, but to forget our sins. Essentially, moving forward, we see that the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them, meaning us. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write their laws in their minds. Quoting essentially from Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. Today, <coughs> excuse me, we no longer need the Levitical order the Holy Spirit within us is what guides and directs via the Word of God, via the counsel of God, via the Scriptures. And then we see, quoting again, from Jeremiah 31, 34, 
their sins and their lawless acts, I will remember no more. How many of you have ever committed something that like, you've, you've done, right, and you've gone to somebody's house and they've forgiven you, but every time you go to their house, you kind of feel guilty, right? I, I won't, these were my pre-Jesus days and, and uh, I got into trouble with someone and I ended up getting sick in their car on the way home. And all I'm going to say is it wasn't pleasant. And so the next morning I went and cleaned it up and all that kind of stuff and asked them to forgive me. And they did and they were gracious. Um, interestingly enough, about uh, two years ago I saw them at a friend's funeral again and it had been about 20 years that, uh, that I remember and, and all I, rem- all I could, could look at is like, I'm looking at them and I'm like, oh yeah, all they remember of me is the kid that got sick in their car. So I went up to him and I was talking to him and we were having a great time and I, I turned to him and I was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm still really sorry for what I did in your car. And you know what's interesting? They turned to me like, oh, oh yeah, I guess that was you. He'd completely forgotten about it. Yet it was so in my brain. Brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the things that I would encourage you in is in our lives, one of the things that the enemy tries to do is remind us that sure you're forgiven, but I still remember, or God still remembers. What a joyous thing is it to go before God and to say, God, forgive me for acts, and God says, I don't remember. I don't hold that against you. I don't have a record of that in my book. I don't have that black tick against you. And the reason that I don't is because of what Christ has done for you. Because when I look at Christ, I see you and you've been made perfect. So I have no record of that. I have no record of your wrongdoing. And I don't remember. And then it continues on, and it says, and where those laws have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. We don't need it anymore. It's done. It's over. So the one thing that I want you to do is when you have things that are bothering you with Jesus, stop bringing them to the altar of perfection, the altar of the world, and trying to sacrifice them here, thinking that that's how you gain God's approvability. It's done. It's over. You've been made perfect through the cross of Jesus Christ. You are holy, you are perfected, and you are being made holy by what Christ has accomplished. In reflecting upon Jeremiah 31, we see the author declare that the Old Testament itself anticipated what belongs to us today. The author causes the reader to look to a day when the people of God would be in a state of completeness. We have been made perfect and a day is coming when the culmination of perfection will happen in God's kingdom. And what the author is doing for us here is saying, that day has dawned in Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament system, all of the pomp and circumstance is done. You are perfect and you've been made perfect through Jesus. And the final thing that I want you to look at in this particular passage is this. Look at the bookends, essentially the first portion and the last portion of this pericope of Scripture. 
In verses 1 through 4, we see the continual remembrance of sin to be a continual reminder of our sin and guilt before God. Notice that. You're still guilty. You're still a sinner. I still haven't forgotten. Yet through the cross, okay, through the cross, in verses 15 through 18, we see that our sin is remembered no more. Friends, this morning we've looked at this passage, we've simply asked this question, I can see how someone can forgive my sins, but they certainly won't forget them, right? And we've been encouraged to remember that the law is only a shadow of the good things to come and cannot make us perfect. We've been encouraged to see that Christ joyfully and willingly comes to accomplish the will of the Father. We see and we remember that because of Christ's obedience, we've been sanctified once and for all. We also know that because of Christ's perfect sacrifice, that makes us perfect before God. And we also see that Christ's sacrifice permits the Father not only to forgive, but to forget our sins. And so I leave you with this. The point of this whole passage is this. Christ's joyful and willing obedience to go to the cross on our behalf is the perfect and final sacrifice which makes us perfect before God and permits the Father to forgive and forget our sins. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for our Savior Jesus. We thank you for his perfection which indeed makes us perfect. Father, may we remember and recognize that we are still in a world that is entrapped with sin. But before God's eyes, through Christ... He sees us as holy and sees us as perfect. Father, may we look forward too to the day when all of that will be culminated in Christ's second coming, when we will be with him in his kingdom and there will be no more sin, no more hurt, no more pain, and we will truly see the perfection of our Savior. So Father, in those moments where we want to give up, where we wonder about continuing to persevere in the faith with our Savior Jesus Christ, may the words of the author in Hebrews be an encouragement to us to keep pressing on, to keep running the race, because indeed through Christ we've been and are being made perfect. Father, we thank you, we love you, we pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. We ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say,